Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Uh, Richard Lawson, I regret to inform you, has left this plane of existence because he saw cats last night. We haven't heard from him since, so <laughs> goodbye, Richard. He's, he's, uh, he's up at the heavy side lair. Since Richard isn't here, I have to make the cats jokes, I think. <laughs> well, you, also can, you could also claim to have written and directed it if you want to. No, no, no. Uh, Mike Hogan and I are the fans. Richard is the creative. <laughs> You're the skeptical critic. These are the roles we play around cats. <sighs> um, Richard is, in fact, seeing Star Wars right now. Uh, he did see Cats, and we are going to have another episode this week to talk about Cats and Star Wars. Do not worry. We will not leave you hanging. Um, but as of right now, Joanna, you have seen Star Wars, um, but you can't talk about it yet, and none of us have seen it. So we're just going to hold off. I cannot say a word about Star Wars. Stop trying to make me, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so stay tuned for later this week. Uh, you, I'm sure you will not want to miss our discussions of Cats and Star Wars. Um, but in the meantime, there's a lot else going on. We're going to talk about the shortlist for a lot of Oscar categories. We're going to talk about Richard Jewell. Uh, we're going to talk about Bombshell. And then in the second half, we have a conversation that our colleague Laura Bradley had with Anthony McCartan, the screenwriter of The Two Popes, and Jonathan Price, one of the stars. Uh, my beloved Two Popes. I'm really excited about it. Uh, we're also going to talk about a piece that our colleague Anthony Bresenkand reported about uh, the word that maybe men aren't seeing little women uh, the way that they should as awards voters. Um, but first, as I said, there was a uh, they announced a short list for nine different Oscars categories. Um, it's one, one of those Oscar things where every single category has different rules. You never totally remember which one's going to have a short list announced until all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's a short list for makeup and hairstyling. Okay. So a lot of those are out. There's a lot of things that are expected. Um, I wanted to highlight the original song category. I wrote an article for our special issue about the original song category, kind of framing it as a showdown between Beyonce, who had a song in Lion King, and Taylor Swift, who had a song in uh, Richard Lawson's Cats. Um, Taylor Swift <laughs> didn't make the short list, you guys. This is crazy. Oh, no. Oh, no. My, like the dueling divas we were promised. What I know. Hell? Yeah. Well, yeah. I feel like, why am I happy when bad things happen to Taylor Swift? Am I a bad person? <laughs> I think you're just on the internet. That's like yeah, a prerequisite. I'm just extremely online. Uh, yeah, I just, uh, well, it's too bad. It would have been cool to have a big, uh, like you said, pop diva showdown. Well, there's still Elton John nominated for his Rocketman song uh, up against Beyonce. So there's uh, there's some level of pop diva. And um, also uh, the song that Mary Steenburgen wrote for Wild Rose yes. in the short list. So uh, a different kind of, she's an Oscar winner. So, so wait, not what a happened pop diva, with that? She like fainted or she had, a, she had an, a surgery or something. And when she woke up, all she could hear was music. And then she wrote an Oscar nominated or Oscar shortlisted song. Pretty I mean, much, yeah. Like, doesn't that sound like something that would happen to Mary Steenburgen, honestly? <laughs> I hope there's a um, Curb Your Enthusiasm uh, episode about this in season 10 coming This up. is Glasgow, the song from Wild Rose, is my favorite song, original song of the year. And so, like, uh, to see it on the shortlist makes me really happy. I don't know if it's going to make the final cut because I bet we're going to get, like, 
you know, the song from Harriet. Like, there's a lot of, like, bigger things sort of taking up the oxygen in the room. But, hey, man, if Taylor Swift isn't on there, it's a possibility that this, this will happen. So uh, keep all of your limbs crossed for this song <laughs> from Wild Rose, which is incredibly good. And not only an incredibly good song, but just, like, an, the emotional climax of the movie in a way that doesn't feel like overblown in that sort of like musically way but a little bit more subtle i like overblown musicals myself but you know just and go see wild rose if you haven't i don't know it's probably streaming somewhere yeah I, I, so check it out yeah mike have you seen wild rose i have not it is it's one of those like surprising low-key delights where you're like i don't know much about this movie and then you see it and i'm um, jesse buckley who was on chernobyl she's got a small role in judy um she's the star in it it's just it's one of those great like breakthrough this person's going somewhere um movies so that's We're right. This is the on. second time I'm Googling it because you guys have mentioned it before. <laughs> and you can rent it on Amazon Prime for $3.99. So I will hey. do that. Thanks, Mike. This episode not brought to you by Amazon Prime. We no. <laughs> um, I also wanted to mention that uh, apparently there's an original song in Parasite called A Glass of Soju, which I didn't know about, but made the short list. And now I'm kind of rooting for it, even though I've never heard it. I mean, I saw the movie, so I guess I have, but I have no memory of it. Um, and I love that title, honestly. I know, I know. Yeah, I love a glass of soju generally, so I know, do. lowercase, without the quotes. A couple other highlights. Uh, Cats did make the shortlist for visual effects uh, with its digital fur technology, uh, alongside things like Gemini, Man and the Irishman, where with all the de-aging that's so famous for this year, alongside uh, Star Wars. Um, so we'll see how all of those things add in together. Um, the makeup category is always really interesting. Like bombshell with Charlize Theron's like famous transformation is in there against little women, which, you know, it's mostly just like a lot of amazing wigs in there in 1917, which I'm kind of fascinated by, I guess, like keeping all that hair in place amid the, the battlefields as a challenge wounds. Maybe yeah. That's wounds. in there. Maleficent. Um, so shout out to Angelina Jolie's prosthetic cheekbones. Yeah. Uh, they made the cut. In Joker, Joaquin, Joaquin did his own makeup in Joker, didn't he? <laughs> and hair. And hair. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then in the international feature, um, I think most of the things that everyone expected to make it in there, there aren't any like crazy shortlist emissions the way there have been in years past. Um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, it's worth reminding, uh, is not eligible. It wasn't submitted by France because they submitted Les Miserables, which I have not seen, but um, is kind of almost as highly regarded as that movie. Um, but it, uh, Les Miserables is in there against Parasite and Atlantics and Pain and Glory and um, a lot of the other big foreign language titles this year. So nothing too crazy at this stage in the game, I don't think. Yeah, if yeah, if you're salty about uh, the omission of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, direct your ire towards France. Um, <laughs> they brought this on themselves. <laughs> you're going to bring back the like uh, Freedom Fries era of American discourse where we're <laughs> That France. sounds like something I'd do. <laughs> Um, okay, I mentioned Little Women briefly in the hairstyling category, and we wanted to talk uh, about Little Women. I feel like we we do manage to talk about Little Women every single week on this podcast, which is exactly how I would like it. Um, but Anthony Bresnikan wrote a story today where he talked to Amy Pascal, uh, who's the producer of Little Women, and a few other people about what seems to be a founded rumor that the screenings of Little Women for awards voters are not being attended by men, which seems like a like dumb joke you would make about like, oh, the women movie is too much for men. But it's apparently true, which if I were making this movie, I feel like I would be like knocking down buildings out of anger for this. I'm really astonished that not only did we hear this rumor, but they were like, yeah, men are going to see it. And it's stupid. Um, I just got the screener again. So I wonder if they were kind of like they just had to resend it to every male to be like, really watch it. <laughs> but I did watch it the first time I got one. And um but yeah, this seems dumb, but also as, as Amy Pascal said to um, the producer and former studio chief Amy Pascal said to Anthony Bresnikan, she's like, I don't think this is malicious. It's just, you know, unconscious bias, which which sounds about right. But 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 guys need to, you know, like shake that stuff off and and watch all the movies, you know, come on. Yeah. Well, and Tracy Letts, I feel like uh, in classic form, like popped in with the most frank talk about it in Anthony's piece. He was like, I'd like to think that there are a lot of factors for why maybe somebody doesn't want to tune in. Uh, I don't know what the hell it is, but please don't tell me it's because it's a movie about women. I just can't believe we're still having this fucking discussion where movies by men and about men and for men are considered default movies and women's movies fall into the separate and unequal category. It's absurd. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know, love Tracy Letts and, and, and always, you know, has something great to say, but I think he's right about that in some ways. I mean, not to take anything away from any of the achievements of films like 1917, but it's just like, it screened once and immediately was like on every list. Um, and, and Little Women has definitely been, been struggling. I mean, I, I personally, having seen it, 
I don't know that I loved it as much as um, as Lady Bird, and I think that Richard, the the kind of critique that Richard had in his review, where if you're not a huge Little Women fan, which admittedly, you know, I'm I'm not. I have not read the book m- many many times. It you know it can be a little hard to follow, and it it may function in some ways as a better companion for people who love the book than as a film standing in its own right. Richard made that point. I kind of agreed with it. So I do think there are other things involved here. It's it's not just pure, in my view, discrimination. But but maybe maybe I'm totally wrong. I would like to know what you both think. <laughs> well, no, I mean, also, oh, go I ahead, don't Joanna. think. I don't think you were on for our little women discussion, Mike, but I agree with Richard completely. And like, so as a, as a woman, uh, <laughs> I can tell you, it's not just men who feel this way. I think, um, the, there's something about, I mean, I've already talked about this. I don't want to knock the movie cause there's a lot I did like about the movie, but I, I do think that if you don't go in knowing the source material, the way that it is, uh, that it hops and skips through the plot can be disorienting. I think that. Yeah, I think I'm the biggest Little Women supporter on this podcast, which, uh, although, Mike, when you say, like, it's no Lady Bird, like, I agree it's no Lady Bird, but also, like, 2001 A Space Odyssey is no Lady Bird for me. Like, that's the the pinnacle of filmmaking in some ways for me. (laughs) Didn't you and I watch it at 9 a.m. in Toronto and cry into our coffees? Yes. It was one of the formative experiences. And we ran into Richard after when we were like, Richard, what is wrong with you? Why don't you think this is a masterpiece? And I think it's haunted him ever since. Um, But anyway, I mean, the thing with Little Women is, like, A whether or not you think it's a good movie, the fact that people aren't going to see it is insane. And like, right. that's, that's an embarrassment for everybody. And then you see movies that, you know, maybe don't feel as accomplished or that, you know, as big a fan of for me, like bombshell kind of making its way, like sailing through all these precursors while little women struggles. That's where I start to go insane. Like whether or not I think something is a straight up masterpiece when something feels so much more obviously accomplished than something that's made by a man or maybe more traditional in some way, uh, I start uh, feeling crazy. So that's interesting. So, so the distinction with bombshell is that, it's a male director versus a female director or or cuz it's ostensibly also a movie about women and one horrible yeah. man. I mean I mean we I, I do want to talk about bombshells maybe this is how we pivot into it. Like yeah. it feels like it's more it's easier to put into a traditional or a more recent academy box of like the big short and vice and it's kind of topical. It's got these performances that are very like obviously transformative more so than like Saoirse Ronan or Florence Pugh and Little Women who I think are amazing but not like looking so much like a real person. Um I don't know I I don't think anyone saying like oh well I like Bombshell more because it's directed by a man but it feels even though it's about women it feels less feminine in some way it, like it doesn't have women in the title it's not based on like a classic girls right. book it kind of has less of those signposts that you know when you get down to this like lizard brain sexism I think might give it an easier time well it takes place in a in a Fox News world in a right wing media world too yeah exactly if you think about Little Women it, it does fall into that category that um, I've seen men dismiss uh, over and over again, which is, yeah, female-fronted, occasionally romantic, period piece based on a classic piece of literature. Like, the, mm-hmm. these are all, like, alienating elements to, not to, you know, hashtag not all men or whatever, but, like, not not to all men, but, like, you know, to, to a lot of men that I know. And so uh, I can see why, you know, 1917, like, period pieces are okay if they're a war movie. Uh, why 1917 or Bombshell uh, would be getting more attention. I don't know. It's, it's, it's disappointing because you would like things to be considered on their merits and even if like we find little women somewhat lacking like it should be seen like Greta Gerwig is a is a filmmaker that demands like our our attention um attention must be paid Yes. <laughs> I mean, Great. right now, the, the year is also just looking so very male. And we've talked yes. about this a lot. But you've got, like, The Irishman and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at the top of the tier. Like, 1917, Parasite, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Ford v. Ferrari, Two Popes. Like, all these movies right at the top. I think Marriage Story being really the one exception of any of these movies that has a major role for women. The Farewell, maybe another one. Um, so that's another reason that like, Little Women and Bombshell, too, they just feel like they have a lot on them. It's like, are we going to have any stories about women? In, in the best picture lineup like it's very possible that we won't which is crazy yeah it is a bizarrely macho year at a time when you know we talk about this a lot uh the oscars sort of live in like a center left universe for the most part and yet here we are like watching lots and lots and lots of movies about white dudes i haven't even seen ford versus ferrari yet i can't even keep up with all the movies about white dudes <laughs> and i'm you know 
whatever. <laughs> I love a dad movie. I know. It's I, you're gonna like Ford vs Ferrari. It's a very <laughs> dad hogan yeah. movie i think <laughs> yeah and I, th- and I think it's a discredit to the irishman and once upon a time in hollywood especially to like be like oh those are just the macho white guy movies um because they're wonderful and like have so much uh t- to both of them and they're really different movies in a lot of ways but it, it has just by the fact that those two movies are out in the same year it shapes the race around them um well in a way I, that i mean yeah. can i say something just as a guy from my i guess heart or something like i wish there were more you know, diversity of storytelling hitting the screen so that when Martin Scorsese does make a choice like the Anna Paquin choice or Quentin Tarantino does make the choice like the Margot Robbie choice, we could just like see it as an interesting artistic choice instead of as like a, a an ongoing part of a problem. But it kind of is yeah. an ongoing part of a problem. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it would be it w- I would rather live in a world where the larger problem were were fixed so that each movie were not carrying all this stuff on it. Um, yeah, right, and I think exactly. Marriage Story has had part of this too, where like so many people are like, "Oh, this is a movie by a guy," and like people watch clips of the fight scene, and they're like, "Oh, it's so like on the man's side." And I think if you see Marriage Story, it doesn't feel that way, but because of the world in which this movie is being released, everyone is kind of primed for the woman to be made out as a villain, uh, even though she's not. Well, I want to say something about that. Um, the first time I watched Marriage Story was in a screening, and I did naturally kind of see it through uh, Adam Driver's eyes. And then the second time I watched it with my wife. And early on, on Netflix at home, and early on, she was like, oh, my God, this guy's such a narcissist. I know guys like this. And she kept a running <laughs> thing through the whole thing, and I saw it through entirely through Scarlett Johansson's eyes. So I do think it's kind of like, you know, somebody, I told somebody that story, and they're like, it's like The Affair. But, um, but it is kind of an interesting <laughs> film where you really can see it. I think it's well done enough that, that both sides are presented, actually. Yeah. I agree with that, and I I think that that's the genius of marriage story is that it it offers you both sides in a time when like it's really hard to get both sides of something. Yeah. Um, but I I can't remember if I had this galaxy brain thought uh, when we were talking about that meme and marriage story last week. Uh, but the this I think is the first instance of Netflix's tendency. I think I did talk about this, but I'm going to say it again. Netflix's <laughs> tendency to like memeify its own movies mm-hmm. that has worked so well for it in the past as sort of like a social media word of mouth. Uh, what's this bird box thing? But I feel like they did it with marriage story and it backfired on them because yeah, that, that fight scene out of context, here's the wildest thing that I never saw coming about the marriage story discourse. I don't know if you've seen a lot of this, but like when I tweet positively about the marriage story, most of the responses I get are like, Oh my God, this, this is the worst scene I've ever seen in my life. This fight scene, uh, which is silly to just judge a movie based on one scene. Obviously this is the silliest scene I've seen. Go watch revolutionary road instead. I was like, where is this? You haven't seen this. There's this huge, (laughs) Huge, like revolutionary road captured marital acrimony in a beautiful, perfect way. I was like, "What? What is this rewriting of history? That revolutionary road is this like perfect movie? I, I don't. I wow. mean, I'm not. You know. So, <laughs> you know, one, once one door closes, another door opens. So it's, <laughs> it's revolutionary road retrospective time. Yeah. I've always been a defender of that movie. So maybe, maybe now's my time. Now's your time to shine. The Leo Hive. The Leo Hive came in. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, Mike, do you want to talk about bombshells since uh, since you caught up on it and um, you know it fits into this conversation too? Yeah, I I, I thought bombshell was interesting. Um, I think at the end of the day, and I'm a big game change fan. You know the the HBO movie um, by by the same director, Jay Roach, um, and. You know, you had said to me, like, see what you think of um, of Charlize's voice. And it is just, I feel like, in the uncanny valley, um, uh, you know, of, of it's close and it's almost Megyn Kelly's, but it's not quite. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like they shouldn't have. I, I, I just I just question the decision making of trying to make everyone look and sound like the real people so much. I feel like, um, you know, game change works really well. You don't have to, you know, Sarah Paulson didn't have to dress up like Nicole Wallace. Um, you know, nobody was trying to do a Steve Schmidt voice, which is very, very difficult to do. Um, and and it was there's a suspension of disbelief. And I, I can appreciate the, you know, the, the impulse and let's take 
take it to the next level and let's you know do something we haven't done before. But in the end, I feel like it ended up just being distracting and you sort of spend too much of your time watching the movie um, just sort of critique, mentally critiquing the makeup and the voices and all this stuff. Whereas I think I would have just rather watched Charlize Theron and, and Nicole Kidman and everybody like do, you know, do acting. Um, <laughs> I think Nicole Kidman, I think, does the least like she does. There's some mannerisms that remind me of Gretchen Carlson and she's got the wig, obviously, but it's not nearly as much of a effort to a, for a total imitation. And I think there's some power in that, that you can really see the Nicole Kidman in there and, and see the performance she's giving instead. Yeah. And and here we go. I don't know. Maybe this is sexist or something, but like with John Lithgow, I was like, well, he's got to put on like a giant fat, you know, um, uh, Roger Ailes makeup or something. And for some reason, this didn't bother me with Gary Oldman doing Churchill. So I don't know what the issue is, but I just came out just thinking I would have rather see Charlize just be, you know, have an American accent, but like not necessarily have to go this this hard at it. Um Otherwise, you know, I thought it was fun, sort of horrifying. Um, as someone who's in the media, it was, you know, kind of like being at work in, uh, you know, thankfully <laughs> not like being at work in other Are you saying ways. our workplace is like the Fox News? No, I'm no. not. I'm not saying that. Um, our, our, our lawyers would like to say no. <laughs> Somebody said, you know, it struggles to sort of get beneath the surface of everything. And I think in some ways that that's that, that that's where it landed for me. And again, it just it just felt like the, the the effort. There was so much effort put into this kind of cosmetic, as it were, lowercase um, stuff that that I, I felt like it didn't necessarily add up to as much as I wanted it to. Um, mm -hmm. I thought it was an inch. I don't share the view, actually. Like I think Megyn Kelly's a really interesting person, and and I don't share the view that a lot of people seem to have that because they worked for Fox News, they're irredeemable, um, and that it's sort of somehow immoral to like empathize with the people in this story. Um, you know, I, that's that's not my view, but but I do think that it it ends up being presenting. I I wonder how accurate the heroic. Uh, presentation of Megyn Kelly is um, at the end of the day, but you know, I thought it was interesting, but I wanted it to be to be even better than it was. I guess does that all make sense? Yeah. But did you did the makeup work for you guys? I mean, did you think it was obviously she looks really like Megyn Kelly, which is something. I mean, that kind of has drawn attention to the film and made people curious about it. Um, no, but what I did think you guys it's, think? I think it's similar to me with like the Rami Malek thing, where like. Or, or actually, I even think Renee Zellweger as Judy Garland. That's less extreme, but like, so something looks really good in still, and then when you have to like watch it move, you're like, I don't know about this. But yeah, mm. I, I did, it. It did feel like a weird obstacle, and and um, like Katie said, um, I think Nicole Kidman is doing the least to try to look like her character, and that works the best. So um, I, think, I don't think yeah. the makeup. The makeup didn't take away. It was more the voice for Charlie's that I think I found unnerving. But I think what Mike was saying in the beginning about you kind of can't not think about all the effort they went to to make everybody look like their characters. Um, and you wonder, like, wh what it's aiming to accomplish. Because it's not like you ever forget that you're watching a movie. I mean, Margot Robbie's character is a really key part of the narrative. And she's totally fictional. And you kind of sense that based on the way that her narrative goes. And then... It gets to the part of the movie where it's like a parade of Fox News people. Um, and then like the guy who plays Bill O'Reilly, like it's like almost CGI enhanced looks much like right. Bill O'Reilly. You're kind of watching the seams happen. Um, and Mike, what did Giuliani you think about Richard? doesn't look anything like uh, Richard uh, Kind doesn't look anything like Giuliani. So that's like. But then Richard Kind's great. He's so, <laughs> so great. <laughs> did you enjoy that as much as I did? I mean, Mike? it's fun. It just feels like it's from a different movie where everyone doesn't have to look like yes. the people that they're playing. Um, it's true. Yeah. It's true. So yeah, I don't know. And then the Mar I, I, Margot Robbie's so great and everything, but but you know, one could argue that that's like a dubious choice to create this fictional character in the middle of this whole thing, where you're sort of aiming for that much um, verisimilitude. Uh, I yeah. don't know. It was a it was a bunch of bold choices. I just don't know that they all panned out. I'm really curious now, like, where Bombshell is going to fit in Oscars-wise, because it, it feels like a lot of people have landed where you have, Mike, where it's like you're kind of awed by the accomplishment of it, and then it, it feels like there's not as much there as you want there to be. And, yeah. like, I think Vice got a lot of that reaction, but it came out really late last year and kind of made it into Best Picture anyway. And I'm wondering if 
the bombshell um, kind of bell curve will work against it or if it will kind of get its same like, you know, dutiful spot in a Best Picture lineup or actress or something um, the way that Vice did. I, I, yeah. And I I wonder about the sort of game change precedent and the fact that even though it's not TV, it's HBO, it's it's TV. Um, and if that's why they were pushing so hard to kind of lift the production values, but if that will sort of snap back on Jay Roach and just people be like, eh, it's, at the end of the day, it's like a good TV movie, you yeah. know, that, that, that I could see people sort of landing there. Did it feel vicey to you? Did it feel like vice to you? I thought it was better than vice. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. I think it's, it's more than coherent than Vice. You yes. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, for sure. And, and you know, Megyn Kelly, like, is a flawed character, but she's no Dick Cheney. <laughs> like, that's an easier person to kind of make your narrator for the story. Uh, put that on a T-shirt. She's no Dick Cheney. <laughs> God. Why? So am um, I crazy for thinking Mark Duplass is having an awesome year, by the way? I thought he was really good in Bombshell. You're like the number one morning show stand I know, Mike he, Hogan. He, well, and I'm kind of watching it over my wife's shoulder, to be honest. Like, I don't, I'm not really, like, putting it on. But, um, but what I've seen of his performance, I feel like he's very good. But is it apparently, is it a thing that people think he's bad in it? Or people just think the show is bad or what? I think people think the show is either bad or a guilty pleasure. But um, yeah. I did like him in Bombshell. Um, he's good in Bombshell. Yeah, it's a pretty, like, it could be a pretty thankless role, but he made something out of it. Um, I also got, like, I don't know, we don't need to get into the Apple TV publicity, but I, at at some point this year, I received nail clippers from Mark Duplass. What? To, yeah, it was, like, some ad campaign for the morning show. I think it was for the morning show, where I got a letter from Mark Duplass, I mean, from, quote, unquote, Mark Duplass, uh, saying how he used to bite his nails because he was, like, so nervous about things, but here's to not biting your nails out of nervousness and taking big swings and here's some nail clippers wow. so there yeah you go. that's the thing that happened anyway sure. um i i love i like mark duplass and i'd be happy to continue to see him in all kinds of big glossy projects I, so, so i i just want to say one thing which is i do think that charlize did a hell of a job in the movie do you know what i mean like i think it is yeah. a, an excellent performance um, and and yet another demonstration of her apparent ability to literally do anything. Um, it's just I just don't know. I, I think it's it's ultimately it's like directorial choices or sort of conceptual choices that I was not at the end of the day didn't work for me. Yeah. Um, do we want to stay in our um, TV news zone and talk about Richard Jewell, the uh, the triumvirate of television reporting and where it can go wrong? Yeah, I watched these two movies back to back, the like night, one Ooh. night and then the next night. It was quite wow. something. Yeah. Um, I finally watched Richard Jewell yesterday. I kind of was like actively dreading it in the way that I have a lot of Clint Eastwood movies recently, where like they just mostly just do not speak my language. And I don't know that Richard Jewell necessarily did, but I found a lot to like in it. Um, and again, I was like watching it at home kind of casually. So maybe that's the way to experience it. Um, I'm not sure what it's, um, Oscar chances are after it bombed really badly over the weekend at the box office. But, uh, I don't know. I like, I, I found myself rooting for it in a way that I wasn't expecting. Where did you guys land on it? I feel like it's it's 85% a good movie and or maybe even 90. Um first of all, I thought Paul Walter Hauser was like uh, kind of a revelation. Um you know, we've seen him in Black Klansman, we saw him in Itania. Um not a ton to make you think, "Oh, I would watch a movie with him as the, you know, in the leading role." And I, I thought he really did a great job, especially they really do an incredible recreation of, I don't think this is a spoiler, of the, you know, the bomb going off at the Olympics in Atlanta. Um, yeah. That whole sequence is incredible uh, and and really, really powerful filmmaking. And he's just, he's very good. And then, he, you know, this character goes, is, is falsely accused um, after a kind of brief sunshine period of heroism. And you're right along with him, and I think really, like, feeling what he's feeling throughout. I, I thought he was very, very good. You mentioned um, on Twitter yesterday Sam Rockwell. I thought Sam Rockwell's really good. Um, where, you know, you can tell Clint Eastwood is, you know, kind of a crotchety Hollywood Republican, but still a Republican, and basically hates the media and and hates you know the government now and hates the FBI. They all hate the FBI now. <laughs> so um, so there were really you know 
really, I thought, uh, cardboard cutout characterizations of uh, John Hamm as an FBI agent. And then uh, the Olivia Wilde thing, obviously everybody's been talking about it, but like the first three seconds, I hadn't heard about any of this. I saw it one of the earlier screenings. And the first three seconds she was on the screen, I was just like, what is happening here? Like, this is a problem, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And and I there is some dispute about about what, you know, this this real life reporter's life was like. But I, I just don't I just think it is ineptly um, the character is ineptly uh, framed and characterized. Um, and so, you know, maybe there's a world where this character does the things that she does and you can empathize with her and you feel like, um, that's a choice. It would be probably a controversial choice nowadays, but it, you could, one could imagine a world where it's like, all right, we can defend, you know, the artist's right to make a character and it is based on at least some shreds of truth. But as it is, I think it stands out as a pretty bad sore thumb for the movie i wasn't surprised to see the criticism and i do think it's it it hurts the movie you know pretty badly this this sort of you know thing that doesn't work properly at best well is this a case where you know you were just saying like i'm not sure how how well it works to have margot robbie play this like composite character in bombshell but like would it have worked better for olivia wilde not to be playing a real life uh journalist who has passed away you know if she were playing a composite journalist i mean it's still not great but we were katie and i were talking about it it's not like this is the first time um in iron man 2008 there's a vanity fair journalist played by leslie bibb who's a fiction, who fictional vanity fair journalist <laughs> yes fictional, fictional vanity fair journalist played by leslie bibb as uh, sam rockwell's wife who sleeps with tony stark while like trying to write a profile on him and i'm like this isn't the first time i've seen this i just think it's a real black mark to uh, you know put uh, this is a real person yeah. and so that's just like that's beyond the pale I yeah think. a it's a real person and that's i think problematic and and you know they're taking liberties at at best with you know a story of a, of a person um and then b it's not 2008 and this isn't a comic book movie it's a, it's a movie yeah. you know that's trying to say what's wrong with the media and actually has some really compelling important things to say about what you know what the media does wrong that that I yeah. think is helpful and important for those of us in the media to look at and think about you know and, and and I should say as I have said before um the film is partly based on a 1997 story by Marie Brenner Vanity Fair reporter um you know and that was a big part of her story and that's a big part of I think what's important about this story and why why I do think it's it's worth seeing in a lot of ways. Um, but also at a time when the media is under attack from Trump and all this, you can't separate it all out. If they thought they were doing an, an empowering story about a woman who, you know, does things her way, it's just that's not what this is. You know, it's somebody who is who is, as, you know, somebody has pointed out on Twitter, like the things that this character does, including sleeping effectively sleeping with an FBI source in order to get a scoop, um, you know, that's just unprofessional and it's bad and and it's not, you know, if they thought they were doing kind of like a cool badass thing, it feels like there's just basically saying like people in the media are horrible and here's one and it's not great. As, as our boss likes to say, read the room, you know, uh, <laughs> That's well, and so um, Julie Miller did a piece about this woman, Kathy Scruggs, and she talked to Marie Brenner, um, who said that when she was reporting the story she wrote for Vanity Fair, that she kind of had heard these rumors about Kathy Scruggs and how what her personal life was, but she didn't really consider them germane to the bigger story, which is about how Kathy Scruggs, as reporter, um, is the person who revealed Richard Jewell's name as a suspect and kind of effectively ruined his life. Um, and I just, it's a, it was an interesting way to point out that, like, there are so many ways to tell this story. This woman is fascinating. She made a huge mistake. She seemed to regret it. She's depicted in the movie is how as having regretted it and it's all getting overshadowed by this one like, kind of unforced error like they just didn't need to show what they did to be able to tell this story and it felt like kind of going after this woman who is dead and can't defend herself for not really that much gain but i would add i think it's not just that it, it's that act which is bad but it but in the context of a different performance and a different character a character written differently you know i think you might be able to swallow that i feel sure. like the character comes off as a cardboard cutout villain um until all of a sudden it doesn't and there's yeah. this sort of change of heart um and i do compare it to the john ham 
character because they I do feel like they feel the same. They're they're kind of one note and they basically stand for like fuck the media and fuck the FBI. And yeah. and that's where Clint Eastwood sort of losing control of his story because he does a beautiful job of getting you to empathize with this, you know, very complicated in some ways problematic um guy Richard Jewell. Who, who gave his critics enough ammunition by being a kind of gun-toting, redneck nut who was, like, obsessed with police and liked to pull people over in places where he didn't have jurisdiction, and yet you really feel for him and—, and you know, so why didn't why didn't these other characters get that treatment? And and yeah. it starts to it veers into polemic versus you know storytelling, and I, I think that's that's what's wrong with the movie. And so I think it's it's it, you know a lot like I said I think ninety percent of the movie is really really good, um, and then but these things are are serious detractions I think. Why do you guys think this movie didn't make any money? Like it had, it's like Clint Eastwood's worst opening in like decades, which I, I didn't know that it, I didn't think it was going to be like American Sniper, but I was surprised by how little interest there was in it from audiences. Well, I don't want to keep citing Twitter and uh, the uncanny value, but I'm going to anyway. <laughs> Dave Weigel had a great point. He just said it fell into the uncanny valley where liberals knew enough to know that they didn't want to see it and conservatives didn't know that they could own the libs by seeing it. <laughs> uh, I feel like that's basically what happened. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's maybe a story uh, that, for better or worse, doesn't have, like, a lot of sex appeal to it. I don't know, and that's a creepy thing to say, but, like, I think that there are, like, you know, true life stories that feel, like, exciting, whatever, and this is just, like, kind of a, a crushing tragedy, you know what I mean? And then, and so it's, like, do I really want to go see that? I don't know. I don't have a great answer, actually. Which is weird, even though, because American Sniper ends with the guy who's the hero, like, getting shot at a shooting range for, like, almost no reason. It, that movie also has such a bummer of an ending, but, uh, you know, it was the highest grossing movie of its year. We haven't yeah, mentioned that... Kathy Bates, uh, who is fantastic and she's uh, really great. was nominated for a Golden Globe. She has one really, really incredible—she has a bunch of great scenes, but one, like, sort of standout, you know— like, oh, she's going to get nominated for this scene. Um, and and I think could very well uh, be in the mix in uh, Best Supporting at the Oscars. Um, so I, I think it's a shame that, you know, I, I think people should see it, actually. I think it's a really interesting film. The problems with it make it interesting. Um, but uh, but the problems are problems. Yeah. I will say that the, the one thing that um, has really not uh gone over well with me is sort of one of olivia wilde's reactions to the controversy was she was saying like it was sexist to react that way to her character when people weren't giving the john ham character the same treatment and i was like i don't think that that i don't think what you're seeing right now is sexism i don't so yeah you know. and, and this is like this is the thing that mike keeps saying is like there are ways in which that character could be depicted in an interesting way because she like was a really like brave and bold cops reporter and she did push boundaries and like this woman had a lot of interesting things to do that may or may not have been morally right um but again like she faced a lot of sexism. None of that really comes across in the movie. And instead, she's kind of depicted as a monster who's out to destroy this innocent man's life. Okay, now we're going to uh, introduce the interview that Laura Bradley did with Anthony McCartan, the screenwriter of Two Popes, and Jonathan Price, who's one of the stars. Um, I feel like I've been talking about Two Popes endlessly. Um, it is a movie that I very much like. It is on Netflix, uh, so I feel like people should hopefully be catching up with it. I, I don't think it's gotten the big award season surge that I was maybe expecting because it's so likable and good to watch. But, you know, if you're putting in your screener over the holiday week, maybe that's something that people are going to turn to. Um, but it's also like a really thoughtful movie and I think emotional ways and you know depicts this really unlikely friendship like whether or not there's a real friendship between um pope benedict and pope francis who knows but the movie kind of makes you believe in one anyway um i like two popes a lot i was really happy to have them on the show so let's listen to laura talk to these guys I'm here with the wonderful Jonathan Price and Anthony McCartan to talk about their fantastic new film, The Two Popes, out on Netflix. And you have just received four nominations for Golden Globes. So how are you feeling after cleaning up? Excited. N need sedating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was nice. I, I turned my phone off and uh, I was fast asleep until... Uh, about an hour after the announcements and woke up to all the messages on my phone. So that, that was rather nice. Mm. 
And so the film is actually adapted from your uh, 2017 play, The Pope, Anthony. Mm. And I'm wondering, what is it like? What are the sort of considerations you have to make when taking something from a play to a feature film? You're, you're making a lot of decisions to, to take the interior and make it an exterior, make it observable. So a lot of interior um, thoughts and, and narration has to be externalized. So you, you have to find visual ways to tell the story. Um, for example, um, a working title for this, the play, in, in the first draft had been The Confession, and I imagined this was built around a double confession by these mm -hmm. two popes. And they were monologues, and they are, they remain monologues in the play, but when you do a movie, the, the chance and, the, and the, the resources were there to be able to actually turn these into flashbacks. So we're able then to go back and fully stage for the first time the conclaves, the top secret um, protocols of the of the conclaves, the election of the popes, and also to go back into 1970s Argentina and show the whole time of the dictatorship, uh, military dictatorship there, and uh, Pope Francis, then Cardinal Bergoglio, his role in that. So, you know, tremendous opportunities to make it cinematic. And also recreating the entire Sistine Chapel, I imagine, is not... Yeah, that was an amazing <laughs> feat by the production designers. Yeah. And I suppose I should ask, for both of you, what was your relationship with the Catholic Church before this project, in your case, the play, and then in your case, taking on the role? Um, the I, well, I was uh, brought up in uh, Wales as a uh, Protestant, a Welsh Presbyterian, and I used to go to chapel um, until I was a teenager, and then, like most teenagers, gave up organized religion. <laughs> um, but... Pope Francis was the, I think, the first pope that I'd ever really taken any serious notice of, because he was. I saw him as more of a political figure and a world leader, um, and I, I felt he was speaking to me and people who felt the same as I do about the need for change in society. So I'd, uh, I was very attracted to him as a man and a great fan of his. Yeah, I was brought up Catholic, very large uh, Catholic family, very intensely religious. My mother went to church most days of the week, and um, to keep her happy, I usually accompanied her. And, um, no, the church was the sort of social, spiritual, intellectual center of our community in many ways. And and um, so I brought up a, a, in, the, in the heart of that tradition, which is obviously a very rich one, linguistically very rich, poetic, um, and I guess the thing it instills with you is that life is, as my mother used to say, is a is a passing city, and that everything we do and say and and, and life itself is all set against a, the a, the backdrop of the eternal. So it fills you with that with that sense of of um, how temporary and life is, and there is a greater reality out there, and uh, mm -hmm. that's something that never really leaves you. And I mean, how do you go for, again, for both of you, how do you go about researching for a project like this, given the sort of secretive nature of these conversations? Well, I, I had it easy um, <laughs> in that uh, Anthony had done all the research and I, uh, I just wanted to fulfill that script. Mm -hmm. um, it helped in uh, visual terms that uh, I'm supposed to look like him. <laughs> Because um, when, when he was announced as Pope, the internet was full of images of the both of us, either Pope Francis and me or Pope Francis and High Sparrow, mm -hmm. people drawing the, the parallels between those two religious figures. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I knew what I had to say, but it was important for me to learn how to say it. So I watched... Um, I mean, I've been aware of him since he was created Pope because he was always on our TV screens and in our newspapers. But uh, I watched lots of video uh, of him to get the cadences. I, I learned Spanish and Italian and a bit of Latin uh, for the film. But I think the most interesting piece of video that I watched was uh, when he was still Archbishop Cardinal in Buenos Aires and he was being interviewed about his, the, his possible collaboration with the colonels. And you saw an image of him which was so far removed from the benevolent, smiling Pope in St. Peter's Square, where he looked very grim, he looked very quite uh, angry and uh, impatient, drumming his fingers on the table. And uh, so I had that image of him, and then I spoke in Buenos Aires to people who 
knew him and had worked under him, who said that when he was created Pope, they didn't recognize him because he was smiling. Mm -hmm. And they knew him as the man who never smiled. So it, it was just, it's very interesting to uh, the stage that I play Francis in the film, to go back and see what, uh, what kind of mood and temperament he had that time. Right. And what sense of uh, freedom and liberation did he get when he became Pope? Yeah, that is very interesting. I was actually going to ask you whether you found it more helpful to look at video of him sort of doing uh, more public speaking in front of crowds or whether it was more helpful to look at him in sort of smaller, more intimate interviews. Yeah, well, it got to or, see both. And, right. You know, I'm used to speaking to large crowds anyway <laughs> in, in the theater. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was... Um, I, I was just very happy that I had those images to look at. But, uh, you know, Anthony did all the, right. the major research. The donkey work. Yeah. And what, what was the, uh, as you put it, the donkey work, what, is, what does that entail? This is a lot, large train of donkeys required in this one. <laughs> I mean, really, it's, um, this is a huge responsibility um, when you do any story based on historical figures. Um, it's sacred ground. Um, and this was especially the case here. I mean, there's 1.4 billion followers with a vested interest in this in this religion, and two living examples that you have to do justice to. So I guess in the end, I probably read about 25 books, watched many videos, and talked to as many people as I could who'd known them or, or knew someone one degree of separation from them. Found that learned a lot of. Um, broadly interesting s stuff and and some specifics, you know, little details about like Pope Benedict's love of Fanta, that at the, the, the evening dinner table he'll open a bottle of Fanta, not wine, and the reasons behind that and so forth. And so you build up a, a picture and then, at, and then at a certain point you go, I think I have them, you mm -hmm. know, creatively, I'm ready to go. And, and then you have to, as responsibly as you can, fill in the blanks of history. You know the the, the the conversations to which no one could be privy, and you have to then. It's it's almost like ventriloquism. You're putting words into their mouths, and they have to be the right one. And you know we can only hope that um, at some point one or two of them of the pontiffs of the popes see this and and recognise themselves in it. But everything that we say, mm. uh, just to emphasise that point, is uh, is taken from things that they've either written or they've said in public and Anthony's had the um, great the audacity to <laughs> the audacity but to make it into a, a, a dialogue a debate yeah. so um, and, and we have to trust him that they, they really did say these things <laughs> and I mean religion is such a sort of deeply personal thing especially for people who have been raised with it and mm. I'm wondering after completing this project, doing all the research, learning about these people's, again, their very personal relationship with Catholicism, did that affect your own relationship with it? And if so, you know, just how? Well, it certainly reawakened my interest in this institution in which mm -hmm. I was raised. Um, I, a bit like Jonathan, around about 15, 16, you, you sort of move away from organized religion. There's too many things being said that you think they can't be true. Someone's making this up. And you you embrace. There's too much fun to be had elsewhere at that time <laughs> in your life. You know, and then you you got rock and roll, and you've got your own yeah. career, and you've got relationships and parties, and uh, you know, and education, and all that stuff starts to just overwhelm and eclipse all that. But no, this has certainly reawakened my my interest, if not in organised religion as a churchgoer. It's certainly the fate of this institution now really fascinates me because I think it's a kind of natural analogue to, to what's going on in, on in the world at large. This debate between conservatives and progressives and whether or not we can possibly find a middle ground which is free of all the acrimony and all the, you know, the, the anger that's being traded back and forth, which is just polarising us further and further. And, and our future does inevitably reside in the middle. We have to, we have to find common ground. And, uh, and for me, mm -hmm. um, well, I no, I, I think, like I said earlier, it's for me, it's it's more of a, a, a political uh, mm. response. Um, but then, you know, um, the person who created this religion was a, a highly political figure and uh, seen as a very dangerous figure by the establishment at that time. I'm talking about Christ, obviously. Um, and what he was saying and doing, uh, certainly what he was saying, was uh, 
was very similar to what uh, the, the message of the film is, which is to, to care for your fellow man, right. to, uh, to have empathy and sympathy, to uh, take care of the dispossessed and the poor, and, um, and, and just to... Well, the, the, within that, and having made this film, there, I do... I add in a bit of uh, spirituality, which um, things happened to me in Buenos Aires when I was uh, filming there and uh, saying mass to the real people of the Vigis Ventiuno. And uh, it was extraordinary to see the, the excitement they had for the priest. Uh, and when I was leaving, the, the priest, the Jesuit priest that had been advising us there about the protocol of the church and about uh, telling me everything he knew about uh, Bergoglio, um, asked if he could bless me. And I, I hadn't been blessed since I was a baby when I was baptized, mm. and certainly never blessed as an adult. And I had this... Uh, it was more than somebody just saying goodbye to me and thanks for being here. It was a, quite an overwhelming emotional experience when uh, that just that very simple thing. Mm. And, um, you know, I felt connected to him, but I felt connected to a lot of other things through it. And I think, you know, that uh, Catholics and non-Catholics alike who go and see this film will come out, hopefully, changed. Uh, this changes the, the theme of the film, these two popes talking about how they have changed mm -hmm. and how they've compromised um, but because we need change. And I would normally resist the idea that films can actually change you but it, the number of people have come up to us afterwards and say thank you, you know mm. this, I'm going to change my life and you know you don't go in um, presuming that, that you'll have that impact on people but it just it's an incredible number of people are being moved by it and yeah. Um, a lot of my lapsed yeah. Catholic friends were very worried about what was happening to them <laughs> while they were watching this film, that they uh, were being drawn back to the church. But, um, yeah, that's not really what we're doing. It's, not, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a film about issues that, uh, that involve everyone. It's humanistic. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. a universal yeah. humanistic issues. Yeah. yeah. And so much of this film comes down to your, uh, Jonathan, your chemistry with Anthony Hopkins and just yeah. sort of the rapport between you. I'm wondering what sort of the early days were like on set and how uh, your relationship as actors sort of grew over the time making this movie. Well, our uh, relationship sort of mirrors the relationship of, uh, of Francis and Benedict in that they, um, I'd, I'd met Tony uh, almost 30 years ago when we were both on a recording of uh, Under Milk Wood, the Dylan Thomas uh, poem that George Martin, the Beatles producer, produced. Um, and uh, I hadn't really seen anything of him in the intervening years, but, uh, you know, he'd always been a bit of a hero of mine. He's a bit older than me. We're both Welsh. Uh, a lot of Welsh actors uh, looked up to him, admired him. There was a certain point in his career when he announced that he was going to retire, and we were all very happy because it meant we might get a chance at some of his jobs. Um, but, you know, you see that the, these two um, uh, uh, men of the cloth, uh, they, they're sniffing around each other like two dogs trying to work each other out. And uh, I suppose that there's an element of that with my relationship with Tony. I was sounding him out. how I didn't know how he was going to behave on set and what he'd be like to work with. But uh, as you see the, the Pope's relationship grow, you, you see it's, it's, it's what's happened to uh, Tony and I, that uh, we became great friends. I had, my job was slightly easier in that uh, I, I go there to hand in my resignation from the church and I, I spend a lot of time listening to him. And that was fascinating. I had time to look at him, listen to him. Uh, enjoy him, enjoy the scene where he plays the piano. <laughs> he's got great energy and uh, wit, and um, no, he was just uh, great to work with. I mean, uh, yeah. He really he, plays the piano, by the way. He yeah. was going to be a concert pianist before he became an actor. And he, he sneaked a, a little musical piece in, didn't he? 
Yeah, he was uh, <laughs> in that sequence. He was supposed to play a bit of Mozart, and he'd he'd, uh, he'd got in touch with Fernando, the director, and said, "I, I don't think Mozart's right for this mm-hmm. uh, this sequence." And but I, there's a piece of Smetna that I'd like to play. So it's very dark, and Smetna had a very troubled life, and I think it's right for the moment. So we filmed this with him playing the Smetna, mm. and then um, the booker went away to get the 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 clearance for this piece of music and discovered that this piece of music didn't exist <laughs> and it was in fact written by Tony oh my god and uh, <laughs> uh purely to get the the royalties i think but it um he'd been trying to apparently put this into a movie for years yeah. and this was his opportunity well, that's, that's great that, that's the way he is it's yeah. great that tricky devil yeah mm. <laughs> So, and also another interesting facet of all this is working with the Vatican in the sense that I know you gave them the script and you also worked with mm. them to secure some archival footage mm-hmm. of the actual Pope Benedict and mm-hmm. Pope Francis. What was that process like? What is the sort of Vatican bureaucracy like to interact with? It was, um, uh, this is really uh, t- a commendation for the producers who, who pursued this. It took a long time. They had to build a relationship of trust. Um, uh, as I said at the beginning, it's sacred ground, and they wanted to be quite sure that that that, what, that our intentions were good. And, and in fact, they were. And so eventually they started to um, really be quite uh, agreeable to things we asked for. And... But the bottom line is they they didn't say yes, but they didn't say no, mm. and and that allowed us then to 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 to, to pull this thing off. We we weren't allowed to shoot inside the Vatican. Um, no no film has ever mm. been allowed to. Um, no narrative film anyway. So we we had to make compensations and build the Sistine Chapel, which is no small feat, and um, and shoot around the Vatican, and sh- and we could fly over and things like that. So we're really grateful for for the participation and next week uh, we're all in Rome we're going to actually present the film to, this, to the vet, uh, this week yeah we're going to, we're going tonight <laughs> oh god <laughs> to Rome um, yeah and the Sistine Chapel the, uh, is, re, is has been built in the studio in mm-hmm. Rome in Cinecita and uh, it is absolutely extraordinary and uh, Mark Tildesley who uh, designed it and built it his proud boast is uh, he made it about five centimeters bigger, so that he can now say he built the biggest Sistine Chapel in the world. So. Yeah, it's, I was reading earlier about the process they used to build it with the sort of uh, tattoo image of the paintings that then mm, seeps yeah, into the plaster. Yeah. It's very interesting, yeah. the, the meticulous level of production it required yeah. just to pull this off. And they had to go back to old images, of the mm. pre-cleaned images right. of the Sistine Chapel, because uh, it turns out that ja- the Japanese company that uh, did the cleaning they did it for a special price as long as they got the copyright of all the images. Oh, my God. So we couldn't use the, the actual cleaned-up images. That's very so funny. So we had to re... I didn't, but they did. We had to repaint the panels and then blow them up. And At a third a third size. Yeah. 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 You mean it wasn't you being hoisted up and just painting the ceiling? No, I'd like to have done that. <laughs> and so, Anthony, how did you decide how to handle the more serious aspects of this story in the sense of you've described this as a humanistic story, but you also don't shy away from the history of this, the sexual abuse history within the Catholic church. And Mm. also uh, just Pope Francis's own history with Los Desaparecidos and the dictatorship Mm. in Argentina. How Mm. do you find that balance between this very charming story and also the more serious aspects that underline it and their confessions. Well, yeah, that had to be dealt with head on. I mean, this is an institution in crisis. You could easily argue it's the gravest crisis this institution's faced since the Reformation. And no no deserving film could could address this subject without facing those issues. And, um, you know, I take a lead from Pope Francis himself, who never misses an opportunity to say that he's a sinner and he says it's not not an, a metaphor, it's not a turn of phrase, I'm a sinner. And he describes sin as an open wound. He said you don't take sin to the laundromat, you have to treat it, you have to heal it, which means you have to not just admit it that you've made a mistake, you have to make take steps to, to you know of redress so that um, you take care of the victim as well. 
You know, it's not just about cleaning your own soul. What about the victim? So um, these themes are very prevalent in, in the movie and, and absolutely needed to be. So I think it was all done responsibly, but um, it's it's not an imposition on this institution. They're having to soul search, you know, actively soul search. Um, and, and they and that's expected of them. There have been so many mistakes made, and this church, if it's to survive, needs to really clean the house, drain the swamp, literally. And um, if it's to if it's to move forward. And not to undercut the seriousness of what you just said, but on one final note, a little lighter, what is each of your favorite pizzas, and do you actually enjoy Fanta? Um, I. Well, I, I don't enjoy Fanta. The only time I uh, ever drank Fanta was uh, uh, any of my children's birthday parties. There was always something left over to drink, and it was usually the Fanta, so that's when I last <laughs> had it. Um, but I, I like pizza, and uh, the popes get to eat pizza. Who doesn't like pizza? Yeah. Fanta was always a favorite of mine. Um, my first movie was uh, Planet of the Apes. I, I wasn't old enough. I snuck in. And in New Plymouth, New Zealand, you could have a thing called a spider, which was a scoop of vanilla ice cream in a glass, and then you fill it up with Fanta. <laughs> And that was my slice of heaven. Okay, that's going to be in the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks. That does it for this week's episode. Uh, just a programming note for the next couple weeks. As I said, we're going to have another episode this week to talk about Cats and Star Wars. Brace yourselves accordingly. Uh, and then over Christmas week, we are going to have a new episode. We're going to have interview uh, that Anthony Bresencan did with Roger Deakins, the cinematographer of 1917, and an interview that I did with Saoirse Ronan, the star of Little Women, as our Little Women content bonanza continues. And then on uh, January 2nd, back in the new year, we will have an episode in which we predict the Golden Globe winners because the Golden Globes are going to sneak up on us right after the new year. So so we're not taking a break, uh, even though I hope you guys all get good ones. Um, so we'll be talking to you over the holiday and into the new year. In the meantime, uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com, writing about lots of award season movies. You can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Richard's out there somewhere, maybe tweeting about cats as we speak. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of what Oscar voters will be doing over their holiday break goes to Mike Hogan. Watching lots and lots and lots of movies about white dudes. 